Hey, before we uh, jump into this, um, I want to take just a moment and talk about uh, the events of this uh, past Tuesday. As most of you probably know by now, on Tuesday there was a shooting in uh, Texas, an elementary school in uh, in Texas, and uh, 21 people were killed. 19 of those were children. And uh, I know for me, it was, I couldn't even watch the news that night. I don't know about you, but I just couldn't. I couldn't watch it. I couldn't hear him talk about that. Um, I know that Texas is not the only place where there are brokenhearted today. I know there's a burden um, across this nation of ours. So before we start, I just wanted to take a moment to pray for uh, those who are hurting in Texas, those who are hurting here in the Commonwealth, other parts of the country, and maybe even in this room. And so would you just join me in our hearts together asking God to move. God, um, you know our hearts better than we know them, and uh, we, are, we are carrying heavy hearts, Lord, and we join uh, a nation of people who hurt for the families of those who were killed. And um, Lord, you're the comforter. You comfort the brokenhearted. So I pray, Lord, that you would wrap your arms around the hurting today. May the brokenhearted experience your comfort, which is beyond our capacity to comprehend. Lord, may they feel the healing that only you can give, supernatural. Lord, may, the, may this nation know that you are a loving God, even when things happen that are not loving. God, we trust you today. And we pray this for those who are suffering. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for your, uh, your graciousness to me. It is difficult to pivot from that, but I, I will do my best. A number of years ago, my father went for a scan, um, and then a few, uh, about a week and a half or so later, they sent a letter to him with the results of the scan. And they said, everything looks good, except we're concerned about one thing. We noticed there was something on your liver, and we recommend that you see your primary care physician. And so the next day, my dad called his doctor to get an appointment, and yet he couldn't get in right away, so he had to wait. And it was during that period of time, those few days, that my dad started to worry. And his logic went something like this. Maybe you've been down this road before, but it's like, I wonder what's going on. I bet it's cancer. The only explanation is that that's a tumor they saw on my liver. Yep, that's probably it. And before we knew it, my dad had picked out a casket and the suit he was going to be buried in. I mean, he was ramping this thing up because he felt like he was doomed, right? And then my dad had this brilliant idea. 
he called his twin brother, his identical twin brother, and he said this. Hey, how's it going? My bro- his brother said, it's good. What's, what's up? And he said, well, I was calling you to tell you that I might need part of your liver. <laughs> now, they have an interesting relationship at that time anyway, but he said, well, I don't, my uncle said, well, I don't know about that. I mean, you don't just call someone and tell them you want part of their liver. And my dad said, he goes, I wasn't asking you, I was telling you. It could be a matter of life and death because my dad knew that genetically they were the same. And so if my dad did have to have uh, a surgery with regard to his liver or maybe even have it removed because it was cancerous, he knew that his brother's liver would be a perfect match and wouldn't reject and all of that. And so it could save his life. And so that's why they had that conversation. It wasn't a few days later that my dad went to the doctor and had an ultrasound and they came back and they said, it's not a tumor. What you have on there is a scar. And that scar may have happened recently, but it could possibly have been there most of your life. My dad had spent the better part of the last week worrying about something that may have been there since he was a kid. We worry about a lot of things, don't we? We worry. And we don't want to. I mean, we hear sermons like this and we go away and we say, I'm not going to worry ever again. And sometimes it's tough to do that, isn't it? I know it's not helpful to worry. We should stop, but we don't. We don't stop. There are a lot of reasons why people worry. We worry about losing control. We we look at our circumstances and we want to... We think, well, I'm just going to control all this. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get involved and try to, and we end up, instead of controlling anything, we find ourselves stressing over almost everything. We worry about our future. The stock market goes down. We worry about our retirement. The stock market goes up. We worry about the taxes we're going to have to pay. We worry about our health, our money, our job, our kids. We worry about our marriage. We worry about not being married. And finally, we stress about getting old. The truth is, it is possible that we can worry about almost everything at some time or another in our lives. Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he started to talk about worry. And this is what he said. He said, do not worry about your life. Period. If it were just that simple, right? Some of you are sitting, oh, pastor, if it's, it's just so much easier to say that than it is to do that. I want to do what Jesus says, but don't worry about your life. It's just really not that easy. So what I thought we would do this morning is take a few moments to look at this part of Scripture where Jesus talks about this whole topic of worry. Because there are very few topics that cut through all the culture more so than this one. I haven't met anyone that doesn't worry at one time or another. In Matthew, the 13th chapter, Jesus shares this parable. It's called the parable of the sower. And in this parable, what Jesus What Jesus talks about initially is about a farmer who's sowing seed. And some of the seed fell on the path and birds came and ate it. And then some of the seed fell among the rocks and the soil there was really shallow. 
And so when the, the seeds actually took root, but when they grew up, there wasn't enough to sustain them. And when the sun came out, the, the plants just withered and died. And then in Matthew 13, verse 7, Jesus says this, Other seed fell among, the, among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. And then later in verse 22, we get the, we get the explanation of what this verse 7 was talking about. He says, the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. Worry does that, doesn't it? Chokes things out. The worries of life will choke out the purposes of God which ultimately ends up choking out the meaningful parts of life. So if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew, the sixth chapter. We're going to start with verse 25 and look at the next several verses. This is the part of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus makes that statement, do not worry about your life. So I want us to spend a little bit of time here exploring this passage After having preached on things like charitable giving, prayer, and fasting, and then how a person's attitude toward their possessions should be focused, now Jesus addresses worry and the need to place one's total trust in God for all of life's possibilities, all of them. We read this in verse 25. He kicks this whole section off with Matthew 6, 25. And he says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Jesus tells his listeners not to stress about life. He says life is more than all of these things that we focus on, like food and clothing. He talks first about food in this passage. Verse 26 says this, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? When Jesus points out in this passage, he points to the birds, and he he points out the fact of not what the birds do, but what they don't do. He says, initially, he says, they don't sow. They don't plant seeds. They don't, they don't scatter seeds. And then he says, they don't reap. That means they don't harvest anything. And then he says, they don't store away in barns. They have no reserve. They have no savings, nothing to turn to when there are lean times. And yet, they receive what they need from this world, which is actually directly from the Lord. God provides for them. They receive daily food to meet their daily needs needs. Now, it's not that birds don't work, because actually they're some of the busiest creatures on the planet. But it's important to notice that the birds don't worry about food or water. They simply look for what they need when they need it, and they take what they find. That wouldn't be a bad idea for us to take some advice from the birds When we have our basic needs met, water, food, shelter, clothing, we're free to live a simple life. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 8, he said, but if you have food and clothing, if we have food and clothing, 
we will be content with that. There's a connection between worry and being content. Jesus asks this question at the end of verse 26. He says this, are you not much more, you should highlight or circle that, are you not much more valuable than they? He's talking about the birds. Jesus wants us to realize that God provides everything for the birds that we see flying around. Everything that they need. But he asks this question to draw contrast. He wants us to consider who is more valuable in God's economy. Later in Matthew, the 10th chapter, Jesus says this about birds. He says, are not two birds sold for a penny and yet... Not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. It used to mean a lot more to me than it does now. (laughs) And then he says in verse 31, So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. God cares for the birds, but make no mistake, we are much more important to God than birds. No matter what you've done in your life, no matter how maybe complicated you have made your life, you are still more important to God than birds. And the idea here is that if God takes care of sparrows that have very little value, then we should trust that he will provide for us what we need because he values us so much more. If God takes care of the birds then you and I can trust that he will provide for us. And then Jesus asks another question. Verse 27, he says this, Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? It seems like Jesus is asking the question, and the question is, does worrying really help? In that question, I think he reveals the futility that exists in worry. We think, you know, we're grinding along, like it's doing something, but it isn't doing anything. It's just futile. He's exposing worry's inability to add anything valuable to our lives. In fact, there is a growing sense of medical evidence revealing that the damaging effects that worry can have, even possibly shortening a person's life. Jesus' rhetorical question here is a reminder to us that worry makes no positive contribution to the quantity or quality of a person's life, yet yet God is dependable to meet our needs. George Mueller is one of my favorite people of faith, in the modern era, if you call the 1800s the modern era, George Mueller is one of those people whose testimony gives people great insight into just how faithful God truly is. Mueller ministered in Bristol, England in the 1800s, and he also oversaw the the function of a number of orphanages there. And he prayed he prayed to God for the needs of those orphans, to the, for the needs of his churches, for his own needs, without telling anyone else about their needs. George Mueller was all about trusting God only. 
The children are dressed and ready for school, but there is no food for them to eat. The school mother, house mother of the orphanage informed George Mueller one morning. George asked her to take the 300 children into the dining hall and have them sit at the tables. And he thanked God for the food that God would provide. Because George knew God would provide food for the children. Because he always had. Within minutes, a baker knocked on the door. Mr. Mueller, he said, last night I could not sleep. Somehow I knew you would need bread this morning. I got up and baked three batches for you. I'll bring it in. Not long after that, there was another knock at the door. It was the milkman. His cart had broken down in front of the orphanage, surprisingly. The milk would spoil, he said, by the time the wheel was fixed. So he asked George if he could use some free milk. George Mueller smiled as the milkman brought in 10 cans of milk, just enough for 300 thirsty children. Worry is connected to faith. Not just contentment, but faith. Faith that God can provide, and he will. You are valued by God, so trust him to meet your needs. Jesus then pivots his conversation to talk about clothing. Now, all this talk about food, but there are some of us in this room who would rather look good rather than eat good. You know what I'm talking about? My oldest daughter, Bailey, a number of years ago, was in her bedroom getting ready for middle school when I heard her crying. It sounded serious to me, so I went to her room and asked her what was wrong, and through tears, she said something that sounded like, I have a bump in my hair, and I didn't know what that meant, and so I asked her to repeat it again, and she said, I have a bump in my hair. Now, I would later find out that a bump in your hair is what happens when you go to sleep with your hair wet, and it forces your hair to kind of look like it has a bump. I said to her, sweetheart, what can I do to help? And she looked at me, and then she looked at my hair, and she said, you're not going to understand, Dad. Please get Mom. (laughs) I think most of us want to look our best. I know I do. Several years ago, I asked my teenage daughters, what did they think about me wearing skinny jeans? I appreciate your confidence that I could even get them on. Okay, thank you. (laughs) To which they said, almost in unison, Dad, never wear skinny jeans on Sunday. In fact, Dad, never wear skinny jeans ever. Okay? I need a little bit of help at times to look my best. And I think that we should be the best version of ourselves that we can be. Uh, Wayne Smith used to say, if the barn needs painting, paint it. Right, If it's within our capacity to fix it, we should. But at times, looking good can stress us out. I wonder, how can worrying make you or I look more attractive? The truth is, it can't. But one thing I learned in this text is that Jesus does understand how much our appearance means to us. The question is, who determines if a person is attractive. They say beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but who's the beholder? Is it, a, is it your friends? 
Is, is it that group of mean girls in the, in the uh, cafeteria? Is it an influencer or is it somebody on a website or a magazine that determines what beauty really is? In Genesis 1.27, we read this. It says, so God created humans in his image. In the image of God, he created them. He created them male and female. The Bible says that we were created in God's image, which tells us that God has placed value in us from the very start. So regardless of how the world might judge how you look, we know that God sees us. And he sees value in us. He sees beauty in us. Because we're, we bear his image. So don't allow anyone else to define the value of how you look. Jesus said that, he said this about our appearance in verses 28 and 29. He said, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. When I think about that phrase, Solomon in all his splendor, and I think about what is the modern example of that, immediately I go to the award shows that we see periodically on TV and the red carpet, right? It's almost part of the brand now that these award shows have all these beautiful, fancy people walk down this carpet and they interview them and they, and they, they fawn over them and they admire how they look. Who are you wearing, you know? Who did your outfit? And they, the, the star will, will share about who, who put them together. Who, where did the jewels go? Where did your jewelry go? Who did your makeup and your hair? And, you know, if you think about it, if you think about it, you realize that person didn't do that on their own. In fact, they, they couldn't do that. on. It took a village of people to put that whole thing together, right? And they look spectacular. I mean, most of the time, right? Most of the time. Somebody's sometimes off the reservation in their, in their outfit choice. But, you know, they look, they look beautiful. They look handsome, right? Every flaw and every imperfection are hidden. But here's the reality. The next day or the day after, depending on how long they're at a, you know, the after parties, they're going to look their old, their old self again, right? And that airbrushed image is gone. Jesus points out that the little flowers that grow on the hillside, probably not far from where he was standing as he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he just maybe even motions over to him. See these flowers over here? They exhibit a radiance, he says, a beauty that even the most beautiful human beings who are dressed like Solomon in all his splendor cannot even begin to match the beauty that is found in these flowers. And then Jesus says this about these flowers. He said, they don't labor. They don't work to get this way. They don't spin. That's a reference to making clothing. They don't do any of that. They do nothing, and yet they outshine Solomon on a red carpet kind of day. And then we read this in verse 30. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? 
If God beautifies the grass that is gone in a day only to be burned as fuel, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Dallas Willard writes about this term, little faith. This book of his, The Divine Conspiracy, is a resource for this sermon. This is a remarkable book. I recommend that everyone get a copy of it and read it. But in here, that phrase, you of little faith, he talks about, and he says that little faith is actually, literally means little faiths, plural. You of little faiths. He says it occurs 10 times in five verses in the Gospels, and it seems to have been a nickname that Jesus invented as a way of chiding his apprentices for their lack of confidence in God and in himself truth is, faith is trusting that the image of God is where beauty is actually found, where it comes from. Physical beauty is not a bad thing, but we shouldn't worship it. And it's important to note that beauty is often fleeting. It's here today and gone tomorrow. Remember, God cares more about you than he cares about the flowers on the hillside. So don't stress about what you will wear. And then we read this in in verse 31 and through 33. It says, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Now, many of you may have memorized this verse at one time, if you've been part of the church for a while, you may have memorized that, but you may not have known the backstory to it. You chase in after all these other things, but Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. People who are uninformed about God often live to eat and drink and to look good. Jesus said the pagans run after all these things. Now, when he says pagans here, he's talking about people who have no faith. People who do not have their faith in God. People who live by the worldly standards. And their lives are mostly about living to eat and to drink and to look good. Consequently, though, the byproduct of a life like that is filled with anxiety and anger and even sometimes levels of depression In contrast, those who understand Jesus and his heavenly Father know the provision that God has made for them. And though they work, they don't worry about the things on this earth. Instead, they're always seeking first the kingdom of God. So I want to encourage all of us to place a top priority on identifying and then Involving yourself in what God is doing and in his righteousness. Don't worry about all this other stuff. Focus on living in God's kingdom and living in his righteousness. And then Jesus closes this section with verse 34. A a little bit of humor from the Lord. Look what he says. He says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I mean, you're worrying about tomorrow. You can't change that. 
Don't worry about it, he says. When we trust things that are totally reliable, like the promise that God will provide, we trust things that are totally reliable, and we have good, we've learned from good sources, including our own experience. We've found God to be reliable at times, that these things are real, that worry becomes completely unnecessary. It occurs only as a carryover in our lives from an old habit, a bad habit that we used to have when we trusted in things, things like human approval or our own personal wealth, things that eventually will let us down. Now our strategy should be an unwavering rejection of worry because God's reliable. He's dependable. Trust God with every challenge in your life. Concentrate on the future with hope and with prayer and reflect on the past with thanksgiving. We will find all of this much easier once we have been freed from the old dependencies upon the opinions of others and our confidence in material things. Trust God. Don't worry about your life. I'm going to close with this story. Chell Knox is an owner here at Northeast. He's the executive director of Lemonade International. It's a ministry that Northeast partners with, working in the largest urban slum in Central America. It's found in Guatemala City. And you can imagine the pandemic over the last two-plus years has been particularly challenging for developing countries like Guatemala. There, the public schools have, were shut down for 26 straight months. The five academies that Lemonade supports only reopened for in-person learning just a few weeks ago. Now, Lemonade focuses on short-term mission teams and sponsorship of school students. So if you told Chow back in February of 2020 that he would have to learn a, a way forward for more than two years to sustain the ministry's organization with no international travel and no public education, he told me, he said, I would have told you that's impossible. Just not possible. Chow didn't start there. He left a church here in Lexington. It's a bilingual church plant on the other side of Lexington. It's in Cardinal Valley. Chow was the minister there for a number of years, but he felt God calling him to step out and take the leadership at Lemonade. And so several years ago, he did that. But over the last two years, the burden of fundraising and the challenges just in the country of Guatemala alone began weighing on him. Finances were so tight, and in March of this year, he told me he was tempted to throw in the towel. He just got to the point. He just didn't see, you know, a path forward. But then he told me in April that he received an interesting voicemail. It was from the secretary of the church where he used to minister over in Cardinal Valley. And he said that the church was contacting him to say they wanted to make a contribution to Lemonade. Now, the church had great respect for Chow and were grateful for he and his wife, Holly, and all they had done to invest in them. 
but it had been a while since they'd been there, and the church's attendance had declined after Chow had left, so Chow imagined the donation would be around 50 or $100. All, all gifts are meaningful, but he wasn't expecting a lot. He said a few weeks later, after receiving that voicemail, Lemonade received a donation in the mail, and it was a check for $50,000. In fact, when Chow told me the story, he had made a photocopy of it. He said, see, I want to show you. I just couldn't believe it. He was so grateful for, to God. This would not only help Lemonade to get their feet underneath them in ministry, for not just in the moment, but for the months to come, but it was also from the most unlikely place that you would think $50,000 would come. You know, when I heard Chow's story, it just made me think, isn't that just like God? To use what you and I would say, it's not possible for him to say, let me show you what's possible when I'm involved. God is faithful. Please never forget that. He is faithful to his people who seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. There is no need to worry. Oh, we may still worry, but remember there is no need to because he is faithful. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for being faithful to your people. This is the universe that you created, God. Every, every bit of it, every... Every facet of the universe you created and you run its operations and you know what goes on. And Lord, it's not just that you care for the birds and the flowers. You care for everything. You take care of all of it. And in the process, Lord, we know you provide for us. We're grateful for that. Lord, help us to live each day trusting you. Help us to reject worry. We know it. It's debilitating. It's it's offensive to you. When we're worrying, we're not trusting. Lord, help us to be content, to be people whose faith is anchored in you. Thank you, God, for being faithful to care for our needs. We're so grateful. Lord, help us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness in all that we do. I pray this in Jesus' name.